Hello, and welcome to a special episode of The Tolkien Professor. Let me warn you right up front, if you've just stumbled across this episode in your podcast feed, uh, beware. This is not a normal Tolkien Professor episode. What I'm going to be doing here is to be giving a little introduction to the reading of Middle English. This is in preparation for my fairy and fantasy class, which I'm going to be recording and podcasting uh, starting pretty soon here in January 2011. The first several poems that we're going to be reading in this class are going to be in Middle English, and so I wanted to give a brief introduction to how to read Middle English. This involves both reading Middle English just on the page and, even more importantly, reading Middle English aloud, which I highly encourage you to do. So this is just going to be a a rough and dirty crash course on how to read Middle English. Now, in order to get the most out of this episode, you will need three things. One is this audio file, which presumably you already have. The second thing is uh, a Word document that I've uploaded. It's not on iTunes, but if you go to my website, www.tolkienprofessor.com, and go to the Fairy and Fantasy class uh, website, you will find a link there where you can download this document. It's a very it's a simple two-page Word document, um, which goes through a bunch of the notes that I'm going to be reading. It's I'm sure it will be easier for you if you have that in front of you. Uh, The third thing that you're going to need is a copy of the poem Sir Orfeo in Middle English. This, fortunately, you can also get through my website. If you go to that same page, the Fairy and Fantasy Class homepage, and you click on the Sir Orfeo link, it will bring you to to a website, the Teams website, which has a full text of Sir Orfeo. That's the text we're going to be using in class, that online text. Um, So if you have that up in a browser in one window, get the document open and uh, have this file running, then you will be all set to go for the full Middle English introduction experience. Okay, so I want to start with some general tips. The first number one thing, the thing that is most important, is that Middle English might look really intimidating. It might look really cryptic and strange. When you just glance at it, your first reaction may well be, this is in some foreign language, I don't get this at all. But it's really actually not that hard. When you when you really practice, when you really get a look at it, um, and you get familiar with it just a little bit, you'll find that it comes easier than you expect. Um, if you go to Sir Orfeo, let me, I'm, and I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm talking about Sir Orfeo here tonight just because it happens to be the first text that we're doing in class. Um, so I'm starting with that one, so you'll be all ready for it when we get to it <clears throat> on the second day of class. Now, um, let me read a few lines from Sir Orfeo here just to, to illustrate what I mean about how it's not really necessarily as intimidating as it looks. Uh, starting on line five of the poem. Some bath of where, and some of woe, and some of joy, and mirth also. Now, if you just look at that, at first glance it looks really confusing, but actually this is not. Some bath, now bath is just is, like bf, right? Some bath, some are of war, and some of woe, and some of joy, and mirth also and some of treachery, and of guile, of old aventures, that's old old adventures, that fell wheel, and now that is like that befell a while ago, right? That that happened a while back. And some of bourdes, and ribaudi, and many there baith of fiery. 
Now, line nine is an interesting example. You will find, of course, many vocabulary words that we don't have anymore in modern English or that have changed so much that they're not immediately recognizable. Um, but for things like that, we have notes, and so you'll see on the notes on the side. Bordes is presumably a word unfamiliar to most modern readers, um, but yeah, it just means jokes, often with a connotation of kind of dirty jokes. Um, and ribaudi ribaldry. Um, so there you see is sort of just a, an archaic spelling of a word, uh, well, of a kind of archaic word, I suppose. Um, but again, so sometimes you need to glance over to look at vocabulary, but, um, but on the whole, there's not, as you see, there's not really too much that is really perplexing. Once you get the hang, you know, especially of the verbs there, right? Some betha, once you see that betha, you know, is like bf, you know, some are, then you're fine. The rest of it comes really easily. So, you know, my primary message, my first message is just don't get too worried about it. It's, 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 it's not that hard. The second big message is be flexible. Standardized spelling would have been an alien concept in the Middle Ages. Standardized spelling did not actually come around until post-printing press. Um, and in fact, well post-printing press, it wasn't really until people started to make and publish dictionaries that spelling became really standardized, and there was even a concept of a correct way to spell a word. So you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to be flexible. And also, um, you know, there are some letters, you know, one thing that I note um, in my written notes, the letters I and Y Y can be used as a consonant or vowel in Middle English, as it can in Modern English. When it's used as a vowel, however, it's literally interchangeable with I. Like, you can substitute it all over the place. Um, so that's one thing, again, just to be flexible about. Sometimes a word might look really strange because it has a Y where you expect an I to be. Now, I will say that the additions of the Middle English texts that we're using for the fairy class are... The spelling is is fairly modernized. It's not entirely modernized, but they've done the editors have done a lot of work to basically make it look as little alien as possible. I think, um, but uh, you know, while still sort of maintaining the integrity of the Middle English verse uh, as much as they can, um, but still, you'll see that kind of thing that is wise where you would expect eyes to be. Just be flexible. Be flexible. My third note about double vowels. Um, this often throws people off when they're pronouncing, because for us in English, like there's a, often a quite a difference between a single e and a double e. Like the, the the vowel sounds different, or especially, for instance, between a single o and a double o, that is often quite a different vowel sound. Now, this is just not the case in Middle English. The uh, the a, a doubling of the vowel just means you hold it out longer. It's merely a way to show that you're supposed to give that word, that syllable, more stress. Um, so g G-O-D, gold, um, and G-O-O-D. Modern English, there's a huge difference between those two words, God and good. Um, in Middle English, uh, they sound the same. God and God. You hold it out a little longer the second time, but it's otherwise the same. So, and my fourth general tip, uh, and this is, of course, a generally important point, terminal E's are, always, are almost always pronounced. Now, to clarifications to make there. One, when I say it's pronounced, it's not like it gets a whole syllable on its own. It's just a little schwa at the end. Um, so, you know, when you look, for instance, at uh, the second line uh, of Sir Orfeo, the last word, wita, it's not like a full two-syllable word. It's the, the E is not silent, but it's not like wita, you know, it's not like two equal syllables. Wita, you just give it a little schwa, just 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 a bit of an uh, 
at the end. Wita. Stress heavily on the first syllable, but then it just a, a little bounce on the second syllable. And that's how the terminal E goes. Now, um, the other thing that I would emphasize, I said almost, it's, it's almost always pronounced. If a, a, if a word with a, with a terminal E like that comes right before a verb, uh, a word of any kind with uh, a vowel at the beginning, they'll often be kind of elided together. For instance, in line four of Sir Orfeo, been e fund of fairly thing. E funda and of, they would just kind of slide together. You wouldn't say been e funda of. The e funda of just, it just doesn't work. Uh, you know, certainly in poetry, you would just sort of do those together. Been e fund of fairly thing. Um, so you do kind of compress those. Uh, when they're up against other vowels. So much for my general tips. I want to go through some specific pronunciation things. Um, And let me just say, the reason I want to talk about pronunciation so much um, is not just because I love reading Middle English myself and think it's fun and, you know, hope that you'll think it's fun too. I really think that Middle English poetry is easier to understand if you can hear it. When you're reading verse and you really can't get a good sense of what the rhythm is at all, it just reads like choppy and really, really substandard prose. And that's, you're just not going to be able to, in in some cases, I really do think that comprehension Um, is lesser, certainly you're not going to be able to get the effect of it. So if you can get it in your ear and in your mouth, it's a lot easier for you to to, to just kind of make sense of it, uh, even if you're just reading it off the page. So as I go, so I'm not only just sort of going through here, you know, tips for what to look at when you're reading, but also how to pronounce it so that you can you can practice this at home. Now, uh, okay, so vowel sounds. The vowel sounds are the major difference between Middle English and Modern English pronunciation. Um, well, one of two differences. Um, but anyway, the the vowels are different in. In Middle English than in Modern English. Um, and actually, I should give a little apology before I do this. That is an apology to my non-American listeners. On my handout, I have a uh, you know the, a little three-column sort of semi-chart here where I give the vowel and what it an example of what it sounds like, um, and then uh, examples from Middle English. The sounds like column, of course, is really from an American bias. I'm sorry. Uh, I know that you know, my English listeners will not pronounce those words the same way, and it will be of limited usefulness. So I'm sorry, but what can I say? I apologize. I'm an American. So anyway, the vowel sounds. The vowel A is a good open Latinate A, like the A in the modern English father. Um, So examples there would be gamma, or cas, C-A-A-S, um, that you can have a double A in Middle English, again, because it's not a different vowel. It just means hold that A out longer. Gamma, cas. Now, the E is pronounced like A. Yeah, a good pure A, like the A in rain. So examples from both words you can find in Sir Orfeo would be clerkes and tre. Again, you just hold it out a little bit longer there. Now, the I in Middle English indicates an E sound, like the I in the modern word machine. So examples there would be the Middle English wita or findeth. So this is one of the ones that's hard to remember. If you can get your E's and I's straight when you're reading Middle English, those would be the big challenges to remember, that E sounds like A and I sounds like E. Uh, If you can get that, you're like 75% of the way done. 
the O is much like the modern version. It just should be a nice, round, pure O-like note. So here the examples I've given are wo and goad. Now the U is a U that we don't really use in modern English, certainly not in modern American English, um, but it is a sound that you will hear in other languages like French and German, for instance, uh, such as the U in la lune. So that U sound is ideally, theoretically, what uh, you should be doing for the U. I say theoretically because in practice... It rarely happens, and when you listen to me read the Middle English, you'll rarely hear that, especially when it flips around. Sometimes if you get if you get a, a, a word with the U in a really prominent position, I'm thinking, for instance, of, you know, in the beginning of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, when he starts talking about of which vertu, um, V-E-R-T-U, which, which means virtue or power, um, vertu, you know, in that kind of place, you'd certainly... The, the the stress of the word is on that vowel sound, and you would certainly, uh, I think, you know, it's it, you can certainly do it there. A lot of the times, you can really just kind of fudge it and get away with just basically pronouncing it as ooh. But uh, an example here would be the reference to King Pluto that we get here uh, in the beginning of Sir Orfeo. Now, in addition to those five basic vowels, we also have basically three uh, diphthongs. There really is a fourth one, O-I or O-Y, but that's really just pronounced just like we would in English. That is, that's just the oi sound, so um, I didn't even really include that. Um, the three the three that I have included, because these are the three that are, that are really quite different from modern English, um, is O-U or O-W. Those two spellings are pretty much, they're the same ch- sound. They're interchangeable. And this is the oo sound, what we in modern English indicate with a double O. Um, so that means the building that you live in is a hoose. The little rodent that might run around in that place is a moose. And the things that grow in your garden outside uh, are fluoras. Um, so just get used to saying that oof anytime you see O-U or O-W. A-U and A-W, again, interchangeable spellings, are pronounced as ow, as in ouch. So, where you sleep is in your chamber, and that bird that you might uh, go riding, uh, carrying on your wrist in order to go hunting other birds is a falcon. Uh, we will see people uh, unleashing falcons uh, during Sir Orfeo. Um, and the third diphthong is A-I, or also A-Y, again, interchangeable spelling, and that's the I sound, like fire. So that's, for instance, the lie, uh, meaning the, the lay or song that uh, we're talking about and, of course, also performing at the beginning of Sir Orfeo. Uh, and, of course, the very important word, fiery, fairy. Uh, and there he's returning to the land of fairy, as we'll discuss in class. Um, okay, so that's the basic introduction to vowels. Now, one last note I would make about the vowels before we leave it. The examples I've given, it's possible, of course, to do a far more complicated breakdown of vowels than this. I, as I said, I promise this is a rough and dirty crash course, not like the thorough, detailed philological history of the English language version. What I've given you here are basically the long versions of these vowels. But this isn't to say that you always pronounce every vowel that you see 
as a really long vowel. They do have short vowels, too. And the short vowels in Middle English sound a lot like the short vowels in Modern English. Um, here, just let the natural stress of the words guide you, and you'll be fine. Again, here, just to look at the first few lines of Sir Orfeo. We redeth oft, and findeth irita, and this clerk is well it weeta. Lies that been in harping, been e found of fairly thing. Now, if you'll notice, I didn't stress every single vowel the same. I didn't make like long, you know, you don't say, um, findeth irite, and these clerkes wele it wite. You, you know, you don't have, you don't do all the vowels like that. You do it, and you just sort of let it go in the normal, in the normal rhythm of the language. Redeth. So this is, you know, the, the first E is long and the second E is short. And it just sounds like eth instead of eth. Uh, same with fiendeth. And, you know, this is not and. You know, it's just and. The short version doesn't sound all that different from modern English. As I say, even in pronouncing it, it's not actually as different as it sort of looks and sort of seems at first when you're first trying to learn the rules. Okay, so that's vowels. The, and as I said, there were two primary ways in which the pronunciation of Middle English is different from Modern English. One is the shift in the vowels. The second is the consonants. There's one rule with consonants. Pronounce everything you see. Almost everything you see gets pronounced. So, for instance, the plural of king, you say the G. King is. That thing that you cut your meat with is a kinefa. Say both the K and the N. Kinefa. Pronounce everything you see. Uh, it gets harder with WRs. Rita, for instance, if you can get a hint of the W before the R, get it in there. It's a bit of a tongue twister at first. It takes a while to get your mouth around that. Rita, but worth it if you can. Another thing you'll notice that I am doing and have been doing and I encourage you to do, you should always roll or flip your R's if at all possible. But again, so when I say pronounce everything you see, that goes even for things that you might sort of take for granted, like the next word, folk. F-O-L-K. Pronounce the L. Folk. Uh, and, of course, everybody's favorite, knicht. And, uh, of course, if you're a Monty Python fan, uh, you will probably be laughing about this. It is true that the French taunter gets it almost exactly right when he says knigget. Uh, and, and really, that's how you kind of how you do the GHT, except you just kind of do it fast. Instead of really hitting the G, you sort of skim past it so it sounds like pretty much knicht, which is GHT uh, pretty fast, knicht. So you can kind of clear the phlegm out of your throat every time you come to a GH, which is a fun perk. Um, so that's vowels and consonants, pretty simple. Now... The uh, next thing I want to go over is pronouns and verbs, just a basic introduction so that you sort of know what you're seeing, especially if you're not used to conjugating verbs. But it's pretty simple. The verb structures generally in Middle English are, are, are fairly similar to Modern English, especially if you're familiar with archaic in, uh, English at all. I mean, if you've read much Shakespeare of any kind, if you've, you know, certainly if you've spent any time looking at something like Mallory or anything like that, then, you know, you're going to be fine uh, with uh, with the verbs and stuff. But anyway, I would just sort of go over it briefly. The pronouns, um, which often these are important to be able to recognize because sometimes people miss them because of, uh, because of alternate spellings and things. Uh, the pronouns, uh, first person, uh, subject E, sometimes each, 
IC or ICH, but uh, but very commonly just E, uh, capital I or or a capital Y. Remember, those are totally interchangeable, even in a first-person pronoun. The object just may. The possessive mean, it with an I or a Y, mean. And then the second person, the second person singular, thu, thay, and thin. Uh, so you'll notice this is just thou and thee, uh, as we would be used to in archaic English. But the TH is unvoiced in Middle English. So it's not thou, it's thu. Thu, thay, thin. Third person singular is hey, she, and hit. It almost always, you know, the modern pronoun it almost always has an H in front of it in Middle English. So hey, she, hit. His and here. And his and here for possessive as well. It just gets masculine uh, object and possessive forms. His. The first person plural. We, us, and ur. Nothing too strange there. We, us, and our. Uh, the second person plural. Ye, you, and your. And the third person plural, they, hem, and hira. One confusion which often happens is sort of the similarity between their and her sometimes creates confusion. In fact, there's a famous passage near the very end of Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur where a very popular uh, misreading of this passage by the critics really hinges upon people mistaking the pronoun there for her uh, instead at the very end. But that's a conversation for another time. Um, anyway, uh, so you, you have to be a little bit careful about that. Those two things can look can look alike, um, H-I-R. And usually there is H-I-R-E and her is H-I-R without the E. But, uh, you know, there are always exceptions. Now, the verb conjugations are pretty simple. The first person singular... I have conjugated the verb to play. E playa, thu playest, she playeth, we playa. So the, the first person ends with an E. The second person singular ends with an E-S-T. And the, thir- the third person singular ends with an E-T-H. Again, if you've read any Shakespeare, you'll be familiar with that E-S-T ending and the E-T-H ending. Um, the third person verb forms are all the same. First, second, and third person either with an E or with an E-N, we playa or we playen. Um, the, those, are, those are either of them, uh, the plural endings. Now, one footnote that I've made here, uh, on the second person singular, thu playest, when it's made into a question, and therefore the word order is inverted, it is often made into a contraction, which looks funny and it can be hard to figure out if you're not ready for it. So, do you play would be pliest thu, but usually that gets contracted into one word. So it would just be pliestu um, or artu, meaning uh, not referring to the droid in Star Wars, but rather art thou, uh, are you, or hastu, have you, hast thou. Um, but the, the EST combined with the, with, the vo- with the unvoiced TH, it just naturally contracts together. Um, So if you ever see a sentence that begins with a verb that looks like it has a T-O-W or a T-O-U ending, uh, that's what you're you're up against there. Okay, so that's pronouns and verbs. Pretty simple. Um, One last really fun aspect of Middle English that I want to introduce you to before we just jump into it is negatives. The basic rule for how to make a verb negative is that you just add the word n, N-E, 
to the verb, and presto, it's negative. Uh, I've given, I've got a few examples from Chaucer here. She ne wiste what it signified. That is, she did not know what it signified, what it meant. So you've got she wiste, she knew, and you just add the ne, she didn't know. No problem. So adding ne makes it negative. But, and this is a very important rule to keep in mind, a double negative in Middle English is twice as negative as a single negative. In Modern English, you know, we do this clever thing where the negatives sort of cancel each other out and everything. Um, But in Middle English, that is not how it works. In Middle English, a double negative is just emphatically negative. So when Chaucer says of one of his characters, Hey, ne studieth nocht. That means, you know, he wasn't studying at all. He didn't study nothing, literally, is what it translates to, but it doesn't mean what we would mean by that if we said exactly that in modern English. It just means it is twice as negative. And the beautiful thing is, this keeps going. So, of course, a quadruple negative is four times as negative as a single negative. Uh, So, again, this is an actual couplet from... uh, or pair of lines anyway, uh, from, from Chaucer. He never yet no villainia nesida in all his leaf unto no manner wicked. Count him four negatives in that sentence. He never yet no villainy nesida in all his leaf unto no manner wicked. So this is literally, he never yet didn't say no rudeness or low speech in all his life to nobody. Um, And so what this amounts to is a statement of how emphatically polite this person was or how emphatically this person avoided rudeness. Now, of course, with Chaucer, he's often pulling your leg when he is really, really emphatic about anything. But that, too, is a story for another time. Now, one last thing to caution you of, um, sort of some strange words that you will sometimes see. Uh, that little word, ne, because it ends with a short e there, um, is therefore often contracted whenever it comes before a word that starts with a vowel or even with a soft consonant. So if you see a phrase like e nam, that means e ne am, or I am not. Thunart means thu na art, or you are not. Hey nath is hey na hath. Uh, you can see not only vowels, but also H's uh, will get contracted. He has not. Hey nath. She nada is a contraction of she na hada, or she had not. E nil is a contraction of e na will, so even W's as well as H's will get contracted which means I will not. Now, uh, there's actually, this is, there's an interesting story here. If you've ever heard the expression willy-nilly, this comes direct from Middle English, though we've changed the meaning of it around. Um, this comes from exactly this contraction in Middle English, in fact. Uh, it comes from will hey nil hey. That is, uh, if you compel somebody to do something, will hey nil hey, it means whether he will or whether he will not. So willy-nilly means will he or will not he. In other words, you're going to do it whether you like it or not. The people who still use the phrase willy-nilly, which is not too many, uh, tend to use it in a slightly different context nowadays. But anyway, that's where it's from. Um, Another example, hey nolda, hey no wolda, that is he would not. And finally, e not, which is short of e no what, which means I did not know. I wot not.
So that's perhaps not absolutely everything that you need to know in order to read Middle English, but it's a start, and it'll get you past a bunch of the obstacles that people often uh, face. If you practice your own pronunciation without too much trouble, you will, before too long, be able to read this stuff yourself. Um, I, let me just sort of reiterate something that I put in print on the webpage, what, that is my recommendation for how you read these texts, especially if you're new to them. It's really, really easy. This is, of course, true of all poetry, but with uh, Middle English poetry, where the language is less familiar, it is super easy to lose the forest for trying to like pay attention to every tree that goes by. If you stop to puzzle out every word and read every note and footnote on every line the first time you read it through you're going to get nothing. And this, I think, is one of the reasons why so many students read these things and think like, man, this is really boring uh, or this is really inscrutable. Well, because your process was boring, you know, going and thinking about every word and checking every note. Yeah, that's boring. And what's more, it means like you can barely even retain the sense of a sentence, much less the flow of the narrative and what's going on. So that's why this is my recommendation. Your first time through, even if you don't understand all of it, it's fine. The first time through, read it through at speed. Don't stop. Don't look at the notes. Okay? Now, what I do recommend, though, I've made unabridged recordings of these texts in Middle English. Download my readings, cue it up, start it playing, and then read through as I'm reading it aloud. Okay, then between your ears and your eyes, you'll catch a lot of it, probably most of it, and you'll at least be able to follow the basic train of the narrative, most likely. Um, Then afterwards, after you get through it, it's not all that long. Once you get through to the end of the poem, now go back and read it through a second time. And this time you can go through and check to make sure that you're getting each word and you can check and read the footnotes and stuff like that. Because then you'll be able to, you know, having already seen sort of the general shape of the overall forest, the overall, you know, trend of the story and what's going on, then, you know, you can start sort of piecing out the individual trees as you go by and you won't just totally lose lose track of stuff. So that's my advice on how to approach it if you've never read it before. Okay, well, that's my little introduction to Middle English. I hope it helps, and I hope that you really enjoy your trip through Middle English poetry with me over the next few weeks. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.